0: their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. It's not every day you welcome a guest that has a World Cup winner's medal to his name, but today I'm doing just that. Lewis Moody, MBE, is professional rugby player who won 71 caps for England and was part of the 2003, was it that long ago, Rugby World Cup triumph, even winning the line-out that led to the winning drop goal. You may not remember that, but yes, he did win the line-out. Remarkably, and this is what makes him such a special individual, now has his own foundation, the Lewis Moody Foundation, which aims to fund vital research into brain tumours, reduce diagnosis times and give families affected a chance to create some special memories. Lewis, it's not often I find myself in awe of a Sandro Forte podcast guest, but this is definitely one of those moments. Welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Hey well I don't believe you for a second, you, you know, we, we, we've we been chatting and I've heard some of the
1: names that you've been, uh, you've been banding around and it sounds like you, you've you been an illustrious company but it's a
0: pleasure to come on mate. You know, well it, what I said was genuinely true because I'm a real sport Billy and a real rugby fan and I rem- I'm old enough to remember sat glued to the television in 2003 and like I said, I can't believe it's 17 18 years ago um but i was sat glued to that and you know that was a special memory for anybody who follows any kind of sport or is in any way patriotic and we'll talk about that in a moment and i'm sure in the various interviews you've done over the years that that question's been done to death so i'm going to kind kind of give it a bit of a swerve and concentrate on some other things but let's let's start with your background and something that people may or may not know about you they call you mad dog so i'm i'm I would be delighted to know why they call you mad dog. But let's start with Lewis Moody MB for people who don't know him. Where have, you, where have you been all these years if you don't know Lewis Moody? But let's start with you, your background, the kind of the man behind behind the title. Um, and, and let's start with that. But I if you can weave in the mad dog bit, that would be that would be good. Crikey, that is an open that is an open ended uh, question. There, you know. Let's start with the man. I feel like I need
1: to go to chunk out the Goonies. Well, I was born, and then <laughs> <laughs> I was in the cradle. Um, I, you know, it's a tricky one, mate. So, from a rugby point of view, it's, you know, life for me. I was born in Ascot. Uh, Stay Ascot sounds very, very posh. It's you know, I was born there, but my family's all from Bracknell, which is slightly less posh. Um, they're a wonderful part of the world. You know, they're all still their extended family. I moved up to Leicester when I was ten. Um, I fell in love with rugby at the age of five, just before we departed. So I was introduced to it by uh, one of my mum's sort of um, friends, and and that was it. You know, rugby is in my veins. Rugby is full contact. You know, when when I started at the age of five, obviously now it's it's uh, it's staggered in terms of its touch, and then they're varying different degrees of control that are added um, to the years that, that go. Um, And then, yeah, moved to Leicester. So dad moved jobs, went to school in Oakham. Um, Great sporting school. Loved my time there. Did all sorts of sports, cricket, hockey, football. Um, I I couldn't actually... My football prowess was awful. My son will laugh at it because my son's a, a really decent footballer and, and he, he's, in a, he's in a a he's in an academy at the minute, but I am literally useless at football. So they used to stick me in goal, as you can imagine. I had a reasonable, safe pair of hands and, and my approach to rugby, you know, <laughs> as a goalkeeper, meant that there was often a few free kicks and penalties against me, but it was a scary place for a striker to go. Um, <clears throat> and then mate, I was really lucky. I ended up leaving. So I left school in Oaken uh, and had a school coach called Ian Dosser-Smith, who was, the, who was the Leicester Tigers first team coach at the time. So Leicester Tigers was the club I would move to and one of the dominant sides in the in the Midlands at the time, if not the country. Um, and he had 300-odd games for Leicester Tigers under his belt. He was club captain and he was a maths teacher and first team coach at our school. And when I finished it, Oakham that summer, so it was ninety-six. They just had the the World Cup final in ninety-five, which was, you know, the, the springboard to to the game turning professional. Um, because I'd I'd always harbored the ambitions of becoming a uh, uh, officer in, in the army or the Marine. So I really wanted to do, and I was going down that route and looking at applying for university and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, he just said, mate, look, go and see how you get on uh, at the Tigers preseason training camp. And, and as a kid, mate, I loved the game. I never watched huge amounts, but um, I grew up um, with Will Carling as a hero who was a center. I was a center until I was 17. Um, and, and I watched the likes of Martin Johnson, Graham Rountree, Neil Back, Rory Underwood, Dean Richards, all these Leicester stalwarts who are all England stalwarts as well. I mean, Rory Underwood's often remembered. Uh, his mum's more often remembered <laughs> than he is sometimes. Back in the early 90s when he was scoring tries left, right and centre and his mum was dancing around in the crowd. Um, but yeah, man, I was super lucky. You know, you will say you ride your luck, right? And you you create your own luck. I worked hard. I was, you know, I loved rugby um, and and... I was fortunate that I had a sort of master in charge of sport that was connected to to the Tigers that said, mate, go see how you get on. So next thing you know, I was an 18-year-old schoolboy running out in the training ground with my schoolboy heroes, you know, watching Martin Johnson from the stands at Welford Road and Graham Ramter and all those guys I just mentioned to all of a sudden the summer of 96, having left school three months later. um, At the end of that summer in August, playing a pre-season friendly with... Rory Underwood and, and Dean Richards, and mate, I was I was pretty nervous, Let's put it
0: that way. And where did so? Where did Mad Dog come from? I, I mean, yeah. I, that's a kind of that's a rhetorical question because I kind of know, but. Um... No, no. Well, I can, I can
1: make, you say, I love the way you started. It's like, they call you Mad Dog. It's like, no, no, they don't. They did. They did. Definitely. I mean, so Mad Dog came. Um, there was a few other nicknames banded around and, you know, as rugby players and sportsmen, you always have nicknames. My, my actual nickname was Moodos, you know, as a classic breakdown of Moody. It, it, Ost or E or something gets added to the end and becomes your nickname. Um, I had Lou Jr., Um McNabb because I used to like the Andy McNabb books, um, because of, you know, wanting to join the military, that sort of stuff. But then it became crazy horse. Um, but I think the, the, the broadcasters and commentators around at the time realized that there was a, and I didn't know this, but Emlyn Hughes, I think it was a yeah. you know, famous footballer who had, uh, who had the same Nick, who had the crazy horse nickname. So anyway, they, it sort of, it stuck for a little bit, but, but not really. And then I played in the world cup, uh, what was it 2007 World Cup and I was, the team were in a state of disarray, you know, having won the World Cup four years before, we still had lots of the same groups of players around, and, um, you know, we Lawrence Delallier, Mike Cat, Johnny Wilkinson, uh, myself, Ben Kay, Phil Vickery, I mean, there was tons of us, but we were just playing like village idiots, quite frankly. Um, And anyway, I got, I got overlooked for the first two games, and my third game against Tonga, I got a start, and didn't want to let the opportunity go by, and, uh, first minute in charged a kick down as I I used to enjoy doing quite quite frequently trying to terrorise fly halves and fullbacks and um, as I charged it down I got I got the follow through of the of the fullbacks knee right in the temple and I was knocked out cold and I remember lying on the floor and uh, thinking Matthew Tate who was a young uh, winger at the time really talented player he was calling my name out really slowly and weirdly he was going mood I was like, what's wrong with him? In my head I was thinking, what's wrong with him? I didn't realise that I was, I was like out cold, like motionless on the floor. And, and obviously it was me that wasn't computing the information. And then you sort of come around and and this is before the day. Obviously, we've now got all the concussion protocols that are, that are coming into rugby and, and thankfully getting into wider sport. Um and I came around from that, and, and the doctor brought on the magic sponge and, and asked me a couple of key questions, which was, you know, so the protocols around concussion then were, you know, could you answer the years of the month backwards, which I'd struggle to do if I wasn't concussed, um, but bluff, bluffed my way through that. And uh, and then the magic sponge came out, and he said, "Was I right?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." He was like, oh, "Okay, carry on then." So despite being completely out cold and and not with it, I was I was able to carry on. I didn't want to come off, quite frankly. Um, and then the second half. My opposite number, Nelly lars who tried to take my head off in a, in a tackle, uh, almost almost succeeded, but knocked me out again. And and I was still able to carry on. And after the match, and I had a, I had an awesome game. You know, uh, it's not a reflection to the number of <laughs> head knocks I had, hopefully, or the fact that I can't actually remember what I did. But oh. I had an awesome game, and obviously it was the first start I had in the tournament. And the, and the, the head coach afterwards said in the press conference, "You know, why did England?" goes well today and he said oh well look everyone needs a a mad dog in their side referring to me so from that moment it gave it real gravitas and ultimately it was I like to think given to me because of the manner in which I played the game right I just threw myself around with with reckless you know disregard for my own personal world but I loved I just loved the physical side of the game and if I could use my body as a tool to benefit the team then then I wouldn't and Mad Dog's stuck ever since. And, you know, the the not many people call me yet these days. You know, I'm, I'm 10 years retired. And, uh, you know, the, the the landlord of one of the pubs in town when I first moved to bradford avon which is where I lived, he was like, Mad Dog, like it was my first name. <laughs> oh, Mad Dog, great to see you. Great to see you. I was like, can you call me Lewis? You know, that's
0: normal. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, in fairness, in fairness, Lewis, you did go on to write a book in 2011, four years later, called Mad Dog. So you've kind of only got yourself to blame, in fairness. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. But a, you know, I like, I liked it. It was nice to... It was, it
1: was a sense, it was a term of endearment, I always thought. You know, yes, it, it made me sound a bit mental and crazy. And I think people that saw me play often as is the way with sportsmen and women, you know, that it's almost like split personalities. The persona that you have off the field is often very different to the, you know, the crossing the, the white line persona. Um, and, and mine was maybe more exaggerated than others because I think off the field, I'm, I'm a pretty relaxed, uh, down-to-earth human being. On the field, I was, uh, you know, I was a wrecking ball that, you know, I had, I had a slight run-in with a, with a teammate of mine and former well. Uh, a Leicester Tigers teammate who was playing for Samoa at the time, England were playing for Samoa, and I had a I started a what can probably only be described as a thirty-man brawl at Twickenham, and uh, and became the first person in. I think it was one hundred and ten years at that point the first Englishman to be sent off at Twickenham. So I mean, I I tell my my son's mates and that they're you know they they ask about me often sometimes, and and when they when the parents go and Google Lewis Moody and and you know time um, that was a great rugby player apparently and all that comes up is this fight that I had with Alessana to Alangit, Twickenham, essentially. <laughs> I looked like an absolute lunatic. Well, I was on the pitch. Um, they tend to keep sort of a, a wider birther from me <laughs> in, the, in the playground until they actually get to know. <coughs> but
0: yeah. I know you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of the guy that everyone wants to have as his dad if they ever get into trouble at school. You say, my dad's going to come down and sort you out. Yeah, whatever. And then you look up who that person's father is. You go, oh, actually. Um, before we get on to talk about the amazing stuff that you do at the moment, the work with the foundation, Um, And, you know, I'm not going to ask you about proudest moments in rugby because I guess we probably know the answer to that. But um, I I really want to focus on, if I can, a couple of other kind of angles that maybe you haven't explored before, Lewis. One of them is, and I think no one is better qualified to answer this than you. You know, you played England uh, for England under Sir Clive Woodward when England were probably, you know, a dominant force in English rugby. You played at Leicester Tigers, who were winning everything at the time. And I think you'd be the first to say it wasn't the individual component parts, though they were all fantastic. It was that total rugby concept. And you also played for another major force in in, uh, in domestic rugby, Bath. So I'm interested to explore with you what made those teams great? What, what was it? Because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in business. They lead teams and they kind of lose their way. And they often email us and say, we'd love guests to talk about teams and leadership and how you can get uh, all those individual component parts, talented though they may be, gelling, because there's loads of examples in, in sport of the individuals being very talented, but the team not gelling. What made England, Leicester, Bath, Saracens today, what made all those teams special?
1: I think that's a that's a really good question. And I don't ever, you know, over the years you get asked this, you know, why were Leicester so good over those years? Why were England so good? And I don't ever think there's one um, common answer, but you know certainly the the theme that tended to run through them was um, you know you talk about culture, right? But but it, but it was uh, a culture and a work ethic environment, and it was groups of individuals that were uh, accountable and working towards a, a common goal. And under that common goal, we're driving unbelievably high standards of each other. Um, and I always think at Leicester, which is where, you know, I grew up and, and from 98 to 2002, we we were unbeaten at Welford Road for uh, four years. We won, you know, back-to-back titles, four back-to-back titles, um, two back-to-back European titles. And, you know, we were incredibly successful, but... <clears throat> It wasn't because we had unbelievably talented players. Yes, we did have a good cohort of talented players that happened to come together and a mix of old uh, and, and young and, and everything in between. And, you know, a couple of stardust players dropped in like Joel Stransky and uh, Josh Cronfeld every now and again. Um, it was just a, a vehement workout ethic. You turned up, we had a sign that welcomed us saying, welcome to work. You know there are a lot a lot of other clubs that approached it differently with um with as good a success like wasps you know who were our sort of nemesis and arch rivals for, for a lot of those years and they were the flamboyant but when you got down to it they were just as hard working they were focused on a common goal um and they were very accountable to each other and I think you know those those sorts of elements were were really important to us and they they have to be led by you know, it's all well and good having values and behaviours that you hold yourselves accountable to as as a team, but unless they are demonstrated by everyone, and more importantly by the people at the top, by the coaches and the and the captain, then that really they mean nothing because the moment that you know someone displays a behaviour or. um that you know that isn't acceptable. That we've you know that turns up late for for a meeting. That that pulls out of a fitness test because they don't fancy it, or you know whatever it might be that goes out the night before a game and gets hammered, and you know all those sorts of things. The moment that's sort of overlooked is like, okay. That's all right. It's just it's just him. Then it becomes acceptable. Um, so we had a guy, Martin Johnson, that was just the pinnacle of uh, embodiment of those behaviours and you know standards that we held ourselves to and because he never you know dropped below like "Oh, no, that's not true everyone drops below their line at a time and he did but when he did he would put his hand up and go lads, that's completely out of order before he had to be asked or questioned or judged on it he knew it was inherently wrong uh, but it was never he was turning up late quite frankly Johnny never turned up late for anything you know he was always the first person in the door Um, <clears throat> but let's say in a game you know he was out of position he missed a call you know hand up lads that's my won't let it happen again. Um, you know, if he gives away a penalty, which which he often did, um, you know, then again he would. But he set such a good example. Good one, one. You know, one that sticks in my mind is is when England players, before I was an international, would go away on England Tuesday and they would come back. Often a couple of them would have had it, uh, an extra few days off, you know, despite the fact that the, the lads at the club would have been in working every day, playing club matches. They're not getting days off. They're still working as hard. The England guys would come over a couple of days off. John, after any number of internationals would come back, on the Monday, straight in the physio room before anyone else, into the gym, he would be, if he was given a bit of, um, if he was given leeway to miss a contact session because his body was shot, he would he would not take it as time off in session. It'd be like on a five case, you know, I mean, he just set awesome standards and it made you want to be on the pitch with him and it was that sort of environment that the competition for place drove the standards within the team like no one even Martin Johnson could sit on their laurels thinking well if I you know if I take it easy in training today I'll be alright because I'll be playing at the weekends. you know there were a plethora of players that were coming through um, and and that's what, that's what kept us at the top of our game for so long um, and those you know feeding that information down from those old boys as well to the new guys coming through. It was just a constant conveyor belt of understanding what was required of you to make the grade as a first team squad member um, at Leicester Tigers. And because the nucleus of that Leicester Tigers side made up uh, the nucleus of the England team in that era, you know, really nothing was different at England. You just had maybe a coach coach, um, and a manager in Clive Woodward, that, and this is one of the strengths that I really admire in leadership, and certainly admired in Clive, is that I really thought that he recognised his strengths and his weaknesses very early on. I think he wanted to be the world's best coach, but I think you know once he started coaching, he recognised actually that he was going to be the world's best manager, and that was his skill set. He was more business than um, you know than that coaching side. Yes, he was still a good coach, but he then set about getting in the world's best coaches excuse me put himself in a position to be the manager create um, and think you know he was an out of the box thinker he would just come up with he thought if it was going to be beneficial for the team even half a percent you know one percent then he would give it a go yes it may be crazy and it may not work but he's tried it he knows it doesn't work you know and and we could have all benefited from it if it did so um, I think his his wisdom and understanding actually where his strengths and weaknesses lied and, and being humble enough to go, actually, okay, I'm not going to be the best coach in the world. There are, I'm going to get them in though. Um, and I'm going to put myself in a position where I know I'm good. And I suppose it's like that delegation piece in a little bit, isn't it? You know, it's, it's allowing those, um, it's allowing those people around you, the responsibility to be the best in the world at what they do. Whilst you can focus on, on you. And I think also that's why we were such a, a successful England side is that Everyone focused on doing their job to the best of their ability, which meant, you know, you your job was much easier <laughs> because you weren't covering for anyone. You weren't having to make uh, you know <clears throat> extra tackles, you weren't having to fill in gaps the way someone should have been you because the the work ethic and the 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 environment that was created
0: meant that people were always, hmm. you know, the best the best version of themselves. What is it um I'm going to ask you a two-part question, Lewis, based on what you've just said. A, what does it take to be an elite athlete? I mean, you know you've covered some of those inherent qualities that you have to have in in to be to be the best at what you are. But the reason I ask you a question is that again, lots of people who listen to this podcast uh, are in business, and there is a direct correlation, as we know, to the skill sets and the and the attributes that you need to be an elite athlete uh, to being an elite business person. So that's part A. Uh part B is there's the, rugby in particular seems to have become more i don't know if the word is scientific it, it, it's just that there's just so much more to the game now i'd be interested to know whether you see rugby as a kind of an all-round better sport i still can't get my head around and, and i know i speak for lots of people uh, at just how disciplined players are uh, there's kind of a, an ill discipline because you described the 30-man brawl um, and that happens when tempers boil over but yet you know referees control the game it's very respectful it's still kind of a gentleman's sport no one's throwing themselves around or tripping over handbags why is that because no one can no one that follows a range of sports can kind of go you know football seems to be full of people falling over their own shadow and yet rugby they're knocking each other out every five minutes and yet the whistle blows and everyone stands stands up straight I mean it's it's quite incredible where does that come from
1: um I, I think yeah, it's a good question. I think it's just handed down through the generations. It's something that is expected of you as a as a rugby player when you take the professional field that you are respectful of, you know, the the officials, the the officials, <laughs> the officials, um, you know, and and it starts at the schoolboy level, right? And you know, it's. I, I, I suppose when you look at other sports and football is the, the easiest example and I think it's got much better actually over recent years it's, it's also that the officials don't allow any of that behaviour you know if someone suddenly steps out of line they're like no mate you're off the pitch and you know, you can't argue with that because you know you're <laughs> out of line. Um, It's when the It's when the officials or the power that be start allowing behaviours again, you know, a little bit like we spoke about earlier with with teams. If you start allowing those behaviours to be acceptable, then they are acceptable and people will can continue to demonstrate them, even though they're wholly unacceptable. Um, and I think that's why rugby's always, you know, sort of held itself with, with those high standards. And of course, we always fall below, you know, we fall below the line. And, you know, and we have to, on on occasion look at ourselves and make some changes and uh and, and we have done over the years you know there's been numerous occasions where that's had to happen but um but i just think it, it's you know it, it it's just handed down through the through the generations and it's an expectation uh, of so, you
0: so uh, so so a cultural thing really is what we're saying yeah. you know build build good culture and belief within a within an organization let's talk about the foundation and and your mission how did that how did that come about i mean it's it's uh, incredible that someone, uh, you know, of your stature in the game, can can take all that you've learned and can now be benefiting um, other people. So, a little bit about the foundation, Lewis, and 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 its mission, where you're seeking to go with it, what you're currently achieving, and ultimately what your ambitions are for the future.
1: Uh, mate, uh, well, so the the foundation started. I met a young lad called Josh Rowley Stark uh, in. It was two weeks after I retired, actually. So I retired in two thousand and twelve, um, just after the World Cup in two thousand and eleven. And I got a letter through the post from from Joss's dad, Graham, asking me if I could go and help. And he's got, you know, a, a poorly son who's just been diagnosed with cancer. Can I help? And so I went up to Sheffield and met I met the family, met Joss. You know, took on a training session, took a load of old kit because I wasn't going to need it anymore. Um, they were able to raffle it off and make a few quid, so that Joss could send his teammates on towards South Africa. He couldn't travel. At the time because he was he was um, under chemo and stuff. And you know, I just kept in touch with them about a year later, got a message saying, Look, can can you help out the, the lads? So Joss and his brother Leo, they're struggling. Joss is getting all the attention, you know, medical hospitals, medicine. Leo's not getting any sort of love and you know, feeling a little bit left out at the minute. Is there anything you can do? So I took him to Twickenham to watch a game. They're mad rugby, rugby lads. And, and Joss was a wonderful fullback, played for Sheffield Rugby Club. And um, he was 15 at the time, Leo was 13. And we got all the hospitality, you know, pre-match uh, stuff. The RFU were brilliant. Obviously, I was just a retired England captain, so I could um, call upon all those wonderful favours and connections, which was which was ideal. Um, we had a great game, watched a game. I knew we'd win, so we chose Wales. They weren't quite as good back then as they are now, sadly. Um, and afterwards went down to the change room, you know, met all the heroes and anyway, we had the post-match function, Joss, got to chat to Manu Tuolangi and Dan Cole, Makavu Polo. The thing I loved about him as well is he was a confident young lad, despite being really ill at the time. He was uh, 15, 15 years old and probably 12 stone went through he was happy telling these sort of 18 stone behemoths where they should have played better during the game I was like <laughs> play, man. that's palsy you know um, and they all laughed it off obviously anyway at the end of the conversation Graham his dad uh, you know mate that was perfect and and just what the boys needed and, and a week later a week and a half later I got a phone call from May, you know the boys are still buzzing um, you know stuff paraphernalia memorabilia photos all over the house signed stuff just what they needed and at the end of the phone call just said but look sadly Joss lost his battle with, with cancer yesterday and and it was one of those moments and it still affects me now like still when I talk about it I can still feel a, you know I can still feel the emotion and the memory of the moment and you know, that was, you know, so that, uh, the irony of that, so off the back of it, we set up the, the Lewis Moody Foundation because we wanted to do something in Joss's memory, but we also wanted to um, support a cancer charity that was in dire need of, of support and... Um, for those of you who don't know, brain tumours uh, are and, and were at the time the biggest cancer killer of under 40s and, and children bar, bar none, and, but received less than 2% of all cancer funding. So we were able to go, right, in Josh's memory, we are going to target fundraising for, for brain tumours and, and those people living and, and, and surviving. Um, and coping with with brain tumors so that's what we we pile our energies into and and the irony of it is that you know in that letter where graham just dad asked for my help you know with with his son and, and what they were going through you know he actually helped me more than more than he could ever have imagined because all of a sudden where you know i was i was lost when when the, when i retired you know i didn't know what i was going to do um all of a sudden, I had this newfound purpose that wasn't planned or, um, you know, anything like that. It was just there. Day in, day out, I knew I had something to plan and focus on. And, you know, we've now, through the foundation, been able to support all sorts of wonderful projects yeah, linked to the Brain Tree Charity, um, Tested Jow, Brain Matrix, um, which is named after Tasajal MP, who I actually met after the World Cup final in the in the changing room. And uh and and, and asked her to get out of a photo that we were having with all the rest of the Tigers lads, which was much to my embarrassment. I had no idea who she was. as thought she was just a random woman walking in, <laughs> ruining my photo. This is my photo, this is our moment of trick out. Anyway, so <laughs> it's lovely to be able to, you know, reconnect with with her daughter and the family there and raise money for that. Um, for the Head Smart campaign that was about reducing diagnosis most of his times, which, which had great success. Um, and, and we've raised over, sorry, nearly, we're just shy of 2 million now through, um, taking people, engaging people, um, to fundraise by taking them around the world on some pretty significant challenges. You know, we've been to the North Pole, we've um, coast to coast uh, across across Costa Rica on multiple different forms of transport. We did a 1,000 miles across Vietnam and Cambodia. um, and, And we actually just got back in time from the South Pole last year, um, before the pandemic hit. So we, we got all those major events in and we just take wonderful people. And it's just about, also, it's about helping them realize that we're always capable of more. It's about investing them, it's getting them invested in, in a good cause, which is the foundation and raising money for brain tumors and showing them how much is needed. But it's when you get them out there, it's making them realize that we're always capable of more than we ever imagined. And some of the guys that come and do it are guys and girls are, you know, sat behind desks day in day out, very unhealthy. A couple of them were you know into the 20 stone category and we're going up near you know gravel inclines on a on a mountain bike you know you're you're walking kayaking um days on end you're sleeping in tents you know and people are people are really mentally challenged yet ultimately it's just about getting to the end. There's no race or anything. All you've got to do is put one foot in front of the other. And I love seeing how people Really learn a lot about themselves on these challenges. So not not only is it raising money for an incredible cause and, and wonderful projects that I'm incredibly passionate about and need more support, it's also about helping those people that come and do these challenges and they don't even realise it. And mm-hmm. and uh, and the joy we get at the end of uh, the end of the challenges, sitting down and and the words you get from the people that have, that have undertaken these treks with us is is pretty special. So. Uh, I feel very lucky that, that me and Annie my wife have been able to do this. Um obviously the pandemic's been pretty tough going. Um we've you know we sadly had a, a couple of uh, redundancies but we're still going we will still keep going uh, as long as I'm here and um we've got some new projects lined up. You know we've got some challenges. The Lions challenge was supposed to happen but you know it's not well hopefully it'll still happen. But... <laughs> probably won't be in South Africa. In fact, definitely won't be in South Africa. Um, And we're going to the Amazon. So they're just all getting postponed at the minute until next year until they can happen. So there's lots of exciting stuff going on. We're looking at UK-based challenges as well. Um, So if, well, mate, off the back of this podcast, obviously, if anyone hears what I'm talking about and, and is affected by a brain tumor and wants to um, find some more information, go to the um, where we can direct you to lots of lots of research and information on that but if you want to get involved because you're passionate about raising money for good causes then also go to the org and you can go to the challenge page and see what fun stuff we've got coming up i hope you all think it's fun
0: <laughs> well do. we did we did say at the top of the show uh, just before we went on air that uh, I was going to get involved uh, because I love what you do, Lewis, and um, we'll we'll have that offline conversation about um, making a charitable donation to what you're doing from my own foundation. So that's the first commitment I'll give you live. I, I'm now accountable to a very large number of people across the world. um <laughs> no, just written it down. <laughs> um, and and also because of my external charitable uh, involvements, uh, there will be some grant funding that we'll make available. So that's my commitment uh, to start the ball rolling for you. So. So thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. And long may it continue. Um, very quickly, last couple of questions. Um, you've you've been described um, or you've been. You've said before, Lewis, that you would describe your career as a roller coaster. For all people out there who were on that same roller coaster, you know, the highs and the lows, how how do you transition from one to another? Because it's great when you see the dropkick uh, fly between the posts in 2003 and you're euphoric four years later as defending champions. You know, you don't quite get to where you want to get to. There are high moments and low moments. How does Lewis Moody MBE deal with, um, in, you know, in a few words, how do you deal with those highs and lows. Oh, good question. Um, I, I think when
1: you're when you're playing sport, when you're in the sporting arena, highs and lows are very difficult, are very easy to deal with because they come weekly. You know, it's not like the real world that I'm in now, where the highs and the lows a are very, they're much more tempered. You know, there's never a really extreme high and a really extreme low. Like, well, there certainly hasn't been as yet. <laughs> there might be coming coming up. but um, So they're much more tempered and they happen over much longer periods of time. You know, So when, when you're playing, it's really easy because let's say it's the World Cup final 2003. We won. You reach the pinnacle of your career. Right? I was 24 at the time and you achieve everything you've ever wanted to achieve winning a World Cup with, with England uh, in Australia, which is probably no better place to do it as well against the Aussies. But having reached that, all of a sudden, you come back into the changing room and instead of the immediate euphoria which you feel, the honest euphoria that you feel when the final whistle goes and that release of pressure and anxiety and tension and, and everything comes out in, in real honest reaction, um, it's it's then replaced quite quickly by a sort of feeling of, of numbness and, and nothing prepares you for that at all because you're suddenly sat in the changing room with, Martin Johnson, Lawrence, you know, Johnny Wilkinson, Ben Cohen, Steve Thompson. And we sat around just like slumped in my seat thinking, this is really weird. I should still feel like elated or ecstatic or something. And and I, I think now when I look back in hindsight, it was uh, it was a realization that I just suddenly at 24 achieved everything I wanted to do in the game of rugby. It's like, what on earth do I do now? Like, what, what do I replace that with now? And... And the reason I say it was easy in sport was because actually the following weekend, so the week after we won the World Cup final, I was playing against Bath at Leicester Tigers, and and when I'm walking back through the door, at Leicester Tigers, you know, there's a few there's handshakes and iron well lads. This is awesome, and that's all very quickly parked. You're back into another team sport, you know, applied to another common goal that is beating Bath or Stade Français or whoever it was at the weekend um, with that collective group of players and and it brings you back down to earth very quickly and aligns your focus to the next challenge. And I suppose for me, Sandro, why the foundation has been so, so important to supporting my journey post playing is that, it gives me still those focused challenges, um, not as many and not as frequent, but it still gives me those focused challenges that I can align my uh, my thinking to that give me something to look forward to. And whilst I'm working on the foundation or with our company, um, and, and that's maybe slightly more... Uh, mundane in the in the in the sense of the daily work that you're doing. You know you're always working to an end goal and there's some other challenges um lined up in there. But the highs and lows also came in different forms. You know, for me, 16 operations in 14 years playing the professional game. And I also I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis during that, just before going on the Lions tour in 05. And I really put the the my my rugby playing career down to um, and my success of overcoming those injuries and the longevity of my career uh, down to the mentality that I was able to develop. And people talk about resilience, and no one's born with it. You know, it's, it's developed, isn't it? And mine was certainly developed. I came from a, a loving family that was, you know, you know, if anything, an only child that was over overly loving. Um, you know, it was sent to private school. You know, you classics. You know, you could say silver spoon or what have you, but so I had to develop resilience and and the way that happened was by just putting yourself in uncomfortable positions and 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 being put in uncomfortable positions of injury and operation and illness and and thankfully due to the number of operations I had to overcome during my career and the frustrations I had uh, the mental battles I had in my own head with overcoming those that I never saw I never saw anything as a barrier there was no roadblocks they were just you know they were like hurdles So people were like, well, how do you overcome colitis whilst you're playing professional sport and deal with injury? And you're on all sorts of other drugs and supplements and stuff to, you know, to to keep you fit and playing. And then you've got to add to that the ones for colitis. How do you deal with that? Well, I I just dealt with it because... If I didn't, then I wouldn't play again. And it was, and I know that maybe sounds a simple approach to it, but really it was, I just never saw anything as a barrier. And for me, I think rugby gave me that mentality because it Mm -hmm. gave me the opportunity to build resilience through the positions that I found myself in, whether it was an 18-year-old schoolboy in a man's game, in a man's environment off the pitch, you know, learning all those skills, getting injured, having to turn up to training after, you know, damaging multiple bones, breaking ribs, you know, getting blind in one eye and still being expected to turn up to training and, you know, all those sorts of things. It was, you just build it and it becomes a part of you. And, and all of a sudden you look back and go, wow, how did you get through that? It was just another hurdle to overcome. It was that yeah. same.
0: Amazing. I, and I love the the quote that you've you've given us, the takeaway about, you know, resilience comes from putting yourself in uncomfortable positions. And I think that's absolutely right. Life and business teaches us that. Final question, Lewis, because time, unfortunately, is against us. I'd love to go on talking to you. But final question. Um, Let's imagine one of the kids, I I think they're playing Fortnite at the moment. Um, Let's imagine one of them comes up to you, uh, gun in hand and says, you know, uh, Dad, you know, I I, I admire everything you've ever achieved. uh, But if there was one mantra, if there was one rule by which I could live my life above any other based on your own experiences in in life and sport and, and now with the foundation, what would that one piece of advice that you give to a younger version of yourself be, Lewis? Oh mate,
1: I hate this question because there's always so many. There's always more than one answer. Um, but the one I like to give is 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 do what you love because if you love it, you'll want to be better at it, and ultimately you're more likely to be successful. Um, I suppose sometimes for people finding what you love is 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 the challenge. The other unique, I suppose, the other thing I would I would offer as well is. And it comes from having been England captain and, you know, having probably uh, doubted myself a lot and and gone about things in, in in a slightly different way than I possibly should have done, is actually just be yourself. Mm. Do everything in an authentic, unique way to being you. Don't feel like you have to be anyone else. Don't, you know, don't become, in my case, the Neil Back or the Josh Cranfeld. Be the Lewis Moody, do it your way. Take the best qualities of other, other individuals and learn, but do it your way and be authentic. I think that's uh, that's the biggest
0: piece of advice I could ever give my my son, really, from my from my playing days. Fantastic. What a lovely way to finish that podcast. It was it was exceptional meeting you. Um, I've loved every minute talking to you. I did say at the start that I was somewhat in awe of, of speaking to you and uh, I think there's lots of people out there listening that now know why. So, Lewis Moody, MBE, thank you so much for joining us on the Sandro Forte podcast. What a pleasure, mate. Take care and uh, and hopefully we get to speak again.